Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 425 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Poetry Break, host Julia Copus is joined by Rebecca Watts to discuss the poem My Grandmother's Love Letters by the 20th century poet Hart Crane. This is Poetry Break for the Royal Literary Fund. I'm Julia Copus, and with me today to talk about one of her favourite poems is the poet, editor and literary critic Rebecca Watts. Rebecca's debut collection, The Met Office Advises Caution, Carcanet 2016, was a Poetry Book Society recommendation and was shortlisted for the 2017 Seamus Heaney Centre First Collection Poetry Prize. Her second, Red Gloves, was also published by Carcanet in 2020. In 2019, Rebecca edited Carcanet's Elizabeth Jennings' New Selected Poems, introducing a new generation of readers to one of the 20th century's best-loved poets. As a critic, she has contributed essays and reviews to the TLS and PN Review, and is known for her 2018 polemic, The Cult of the Noble Amateur, which sparked widespread debate about contemporary trends in poetry. Rebecca has collaborated with visual artists and composers and has completed poetry commissions from the BBC, the Polar Museum and Adam Brooks Hospital. Her awards include residencies at Hawthorne and Castle and Gladstone's Library and grants from the Rolex Mentor and Protégé Arts Initiative, it's one to get your lips around, uh, the Society of Authors and Arts Council England. She's currently working on poems, creative essays and songs. So lots to look forward to from her. Rebecca. It's so nice to see you in the flesh and meet uh, face-to-face because we have communicated, haven't we, by email and by Zoom and all sorts of things. We have. Uh, so this is the first time that we're getting to meet and uh, it is lovely to have you here. Now, you've chosen a poem by an American poet. Uh, could you tell us who that poet is, what the poem is, and uh, maybe what first drew you to it, if you can remember? or what it is that you love about it now? Of course, so the poem I've chosen is My Grandmother's Love Letters by Hart Crane. Um, Hart Crane didn't have a long life. He was born in 1899 and died in 1932. So he's a real kind of American modernist, I guess, Um, has also been described as the romantic of the 20th century. So he was bound to appeal to me because I have a real soft spot for um, romanticism in all its forms. Um, This poem was really my first introduction to his work and it was several years ago I picked up from a charity shop this lovely little selected poems in the Faber Poet to Poet series. So it's um, Hart Crane, poems selected by Maurice Reardon. And we should say at this point that by probably fairly weird coincidence, we've both got exactly the same edition, we have. haven't we? <laughs> um, we're going to delve into the poem in a little bit, but first we should hear it. And before we have a listen to it, is there anything that you would like us to listen out for in particular, even particular words or phrases that you would um, want to draw our attention to as we listen? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. 
I love poems like this where there aren't any really tricky words. You know, mm. I, I imagine all the words in this poem will be words that most people are familiar with. It's quite clear what the situation is. Um, but acoustically, it's really doing a lot. So mm. I would listen out for some repetitions and maybe even a handful of rhymes. Not to fixate on them, but just mm. be open to them appearing. That they might be there and might not be thudding at the end of a line. Absolutely. So, yeah. OK, well, should we have a listen to the poem? Sure. My grandmother's love letters. There are no stars tonight, but those of memory. Yet how much room for memory there is in the loose girdle of soft rain. There is even room enough for the letters of my mother's mother, Elizabeth, that have been pressed so long into a corner of the roof that they are brown and soft and liable to melt as snow. Over the greatness of such space, steps must be gentle. It is all hung by an invisible white hair. It trembles as birch limbs webbing the air. And I ask myself, are your fingers long enough to play old keys that are but echoes? Is the silence strong enough to carry back the music to its source and back to you again as though to her? Yet I would lead my grandmother by the hand through much of what she would not understand. And so I stumble, and the rain continues on the roof with such a sound of gently pitying laughter. That's great, isn't it? So would you mind, just in terms of content, very briefly, to give us a, a sort of sketch or a run-through, maybe roughly stanza by stanza? Sure. So um, I suppose being very um, executive summary about it, stanza one I take to be saying, what a perfect night for some nostalgia. Um, stanza two, maybe now is the time to revisit and examine those memories I've left in the corner of the attic for so long. Yeah, there was even room enough. Yeah. Yeah. Stanza three, actually, there's something a bit scary about going there. You know, we have this hung by an invisible white hair, trembling, mm. cobwebby sense. It's all mm. getting a bit mm. cold and fear-inducing. Yeah. And then we have this direct question, and I ask myself, and I suppose what he's asking himself is, can I even do it? You know, mm. if I get over my fear, that's one thing, but am I mature enough, am I strong enough, am I sensitive and capable enough to channel or hold or process, yeah, yeah. generally yeah. deal with the past? Um, and then in stanza five, I want to bring the past into the present, reconcile myself to it and it to me, but... It doesn't seem to want to belong there, and so I've reached an impasse. Well, I think that's brilliant. So should we delve a bit deeper? Sure. It's interesting because in the edition of poems that we've mentioned, we both got edited by Maurice Reardon. He says something in his introduction on the first page that I found really useful as a way into Hart Crane in general, and maybe specifically this poem too, he talks about how Hart Crane saw in the modern age a break with the values of the past and that he viewed with dismay the dominance in America of a materialist culture that betrayed its historic destiny. But his response was to commit himself to the transforming power of the imagination. 
I suppose this poem could be seen to have quite a lot to do with the transforming power of the imagination, do you think? Yeah, and also very much it's asking a question, I suppose, of how the present can process the past or carry the past forward into the future and Mm. what is the role of the imagination in kind of handling memory. Mm. Um, As well as obviously in this poem we have the physical handling of memories in the form of letters you know, it's not an accident that the letters which are the physical substance of the memory are brown and soft and liable to mm, melt as snow. Mm. You know, they're, they're hardly there at all and soon they could disappear. Yeah. So um, one of the reasons I love this poem in a way that I, I didn't actually love many of the other poems in the Heart Crane selection, mm-hmm. this one really spoke to me because of the intimacy of the atmosphere and the clarity with which the scene is cast. Mm. It's in this self-contained space, isn't it? In, yeah. Up in the attic. We're in the attic. Yeah. And, you know, an attic is just an evocative space anyway, isn't it? it for, for many reasons. But, you know, steps must be gentle is a metaphor. But actually, I have the sense of this young man. He was fairly young when he wrote this poem. I think 21 or so. mm, mm creeping across the beams to the corner of the roof and reaching out to something and all the the textures of of the paper and the wood and then the sound of the rain and all of that conjures very much a sense of like a charged present but actually one of the things it's charged with is the past it's and the, the past. weight of the yeah. past and what yeah. should be done about it yeah um yeah no, absolutely I wanted to ask you about some of the imagery, especially at the start. Do you think it's supposed to be representative? So we've got the stars and we've got the rain. Is that meant to be straightforwardly representative of a specific thing? or? Um, I think stars and rain are things in poems that are carriers of lots of meanings. You know, they can be bent to different wills. Um, when we begin any poem, I think we're trying to grapple with quite literally, like, oh, what is this about? You know, where am I? Who's here? What's happening? So I certainly encounter the stars and the rain in the first stanza as exactly that. You know, we're in a roof space. Maybe there's a, a skylight, you know, an attic window. And the speaker is looking out and seeing no stars. You know, it's a darkness, it's a blank, which later comes to sort of resonate in a slightly bigger way. And the rain itself, you know, it's soft rain. But by the end of the poem, it's a slightly different kind of rain. It's almost sinister, isn't it, by the end? At the start, it seems to be sort of gently cradling almost. That lovely phrase, the loose girdle of soft rain. The loose girdle of soft rain. And then, yeah, it's changed. It's almost mocking by the end. Exactly. So it's worth looking, and we'll come to this, I'm sure. The words that are repeated through the poem some of them mean something quite different the second time, which is really what you want repetition to do in a poem, you know, to be not the same thing. It's the same word, sonically, but that it means something more, something different. Yeah, or or, or sometimes the same, but deeper. Yeah. Yeah, you've gone deeper into it. Yeah. It's got an additional meaning. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think in the first stanza that the stars and the rain are emblems. I think Mm. think Mm. they are... You know, I think partly why I'm obsessed with this poem is it's at once very intimate. We're in a corner of the roof and we're dealing with someone's secret past, their love letters, Mm. you know. But also there's this real sense of cosmic space, you know, over the greatness of such space, steps must be gentle. Yes. Yeah, I get darkness and void from that. I get a sense of different worlds that are trying to be bridged but might not be bridgeable. 
so I think the scale is at once very small and, and huge in this poem, which is one of the reasons I love it. And the stars, of course, are setting that up right from the beginning. Yeah. Now, you've already mentioned about the sounds in the poem. There's no formal rhyme scheme. We're not talking about full-on rhymes at the end of the lines here, are we? No, I mean, interestingly, there are two rhyming couplets in this poem. So in the third stanza, we hear, It is all hung by an invisible white hair. Mm. It trembles as birch limbs webbing the air. Yeah, so we do have that full rhyme there. We have have full one, and then in the final stanza, Yet I would lead my grandmother by the hand through much of what she would not understand. Yeah. Yet I would lead my grandmother by the hand. Mm. It's got that feeling of pentameter, hasn't it, of those five stresses. Uh, So it almost becomes a traditional classical-sounding couplet, as you say. Yeah, and, and I was interested in the way that, I suppose, for me, end rhyme offers a sense of certainty. Um, any kind of formal metre end rhyme, it has a surety about it mm. um, that unmetered lines, unrhymed lines don't have. And I was really interested that the things he's most definite about that fall into these metrical patterns that rhyme at the end are the bits telling us most about the fragility or the failure of the connection yeah. between the present and the past. The failure of understanding in the second Exactly. That, that's the stuff that he feels most most sure about. Yes. And, I mean, that in itself is quite an eloquent yes. um, yeah, absolutely. message, yeah. I suppose. I think that's a brilliant insight. Um, I notice as well the predominance of S's going through. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the hiss or the whisper of rain or maybe a whisper becoming a hiss by the end of the poem yeah Um, yeah and it's the rain and it's also i get the sense you know when you open old texts and you have the sense that someone's hand was once there on that paper and then we get hands as well later on it's almost it's the whisper of these past lives and these past intimacies that should by rights be gone you know they've been pressed so long into a corner of the roof that they are brown and soft and liable to melt the snow They've kind of outstayed their welcome, mm-hmm. and yet here they here they are. And then we get you know these images later on of music and echoes, and what sound is coming through the silence and the source. You know to carry back the music to its source. All of this is is whispering and sound and and some kind of vestigial messaging or that by right shouldn't be there, but very much is there. And it's the speaker's job to have to mm. deal with that in some Negotiate way. Negotiate it, yeah. Mm. I don't know if this is going too far, but just picking up on the idea of the S sounds, the fact that in line seven there, so third line of the uh, second stanza, we have the word Elizabeth, and where there's S sort of softened into a Z sound in Elizabeth. And it's... It's given a whole line to itself. I was really wondering about that. That's the only line that just has consists of a single word. Mm. Um, I feel there maybe there's something quite personal going on. You know, the announcement of Elizabeth. Mm. Mm. Um, I started thinking, is this something to do with, you know, Elizabeth? I think was Mary's mother, was she in the you know in the biblical story? Oh, I see. Don't ask me. I'm the daughter of a vicar. <laughs> <laughs> That could be wrong, but um, it's interesting, you know, the first time the owner of the letters is mentioned, they're not the grandmother of the title, but they're my mother's mother. Yes, very significant. New line, Elizabeth, new line, and then we talk about the letters, and 
why does it matter so much to distinguish the matrilineal line to announce Elizabeth like she's some great presence? It feels to me that there's something biographical going on there. So we should say there are two ways, aren't there, of approaching any poem. Um, The one idea is that it should be able to stand on its own feet and be read by anybody and mean what it means to the reader. So perhaps that's the, the most important attribute of a poem for me. But the biographical context does alter you know how we read the poem so you i think know more about that context than i do just yeah i mean i by no means have done a deep dive into um the life and times of hart crane but i did pick up on the fact that he i mean he came from quite a turbulent household um his parents eventually divorced i think when he was in his late teens but earlier in his life he was brought up partly by his grandmother now i can't be sure i haven't verified whether that's the maternal grandmother of this poem my hunch is that it is because she seems Mm. to have been quite a substantial figure in his life um and there was a period after he left school without graduating and kind of ran off to new york to try and become his own person where um his parents were in the process of a divorce and his mother and his grandmother turned up to uh stay with him indefinitely in his one-bedroom apartment. Okay. Um, <laughs> consequently, uh, inspiring him to try and sign up to the armed forces as a way of escaping from them. So, you know, there's clearly personal experience there that is underpinning this poem in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't need to know that, but it certainly did change my understanding of how this poem ends when I realised that the grandmother he's probably talking about was still alive when this poem was written because I'd been assuming that he was musing on how to bridge the space or make a connection between people who are now no longer living. But actually, if this is a person who is still living, who he could talk to, you know, who he could lead by the hand Mm. through certain experiences, and that's something he wants to do, but he feels she won't understand. That has obviously quite a different resonance. So, yeah, line 23, yeah, I would lead, as in I want to lead my grandmother by the hand. See, this is again how words repeated, even if a kind of grammatically functional word such as would, you know, the first would would probably interpret as I would like to, I wish I could, I want to. Whereas through much of what she would not understand, there's a stubbornness in that. She refuses to understand what I'm trying to explain to her. So there's a whole lot of emotional dynamics hidden away, I think, in this poem. And Very interesting, because of... without those um, dynamics, you would assume the grandmother to be no longer around, definitely, I think. Um, and here we are in the modern day, and she I would have to introduce her to the present, sort of beyond her in the way that the past is beyond the speaker. Because this does seem to be a poem about some sort of retrieval or a re- regaining of something that's been lost, mm. do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was really interested in this word pressed in the second stanza. These letters that have been pressed so long into a corner of the roof. I mean, he could have said left in a corner of the roof, Mm. um, mouldering in a corner Mm. of the roof. Pressed implies a hand that's doing the pressing. Um, Someone put them there. Why did they want them hidden away? There's almost like a trace of their hand still on them such that this is not the speaker's property. The letters of my mother's mother, Elizabeth, she's very present, even though she feels very far away. So the question of who is reclaiming what? Why are the letters in this attic? Whose house are we in? Are we in the speaker's house? Is this a family home that he's come back to visit? 
is the grandmother living there? Does she know the letters are there? And also, who are the love letters to and from? There's so much that's unsaid and mm. there is a sense, I think, of trespass. Um, mm. You know, not just the present kind of trespassing on the territory of the past, which maybe should be left as it is, left to dissolve and melt away, but also this sense of the ownership of experience and whose experience counts most now um, mm. and whether those different experiences and different worldviews can ever be brought into a functional Alignment. dialogue. Mm. Yeah, mm. exactly. You mentioned at the start the R word, romanticism. Um, there is that sense, I think, that the letters hold some kind of promise that they are a portal to some sort of richer experience something better you know that romantic Mm. capital r romantic poetry idea elevating the past yeah Mm. yeah so going back to the introduction that morris reardon wrote he talks there about the visionary power of poetry to transform an intolerable world and that this is something that hart crane believed in yeah, that, and that's interesting in this poem because I think that's really the very thing that's being brought into doubt or questioned mm. in this poem. In, I suppose I'd call it the fourth stanza, although we've got a floating line just before it where he introduces this direct confrontation. And I ask myself, yeah, which is such a scary moment because we've yeah. been in the soft world of these letters in the past and thinking about, you know, how fragile it all is. Yeah, and it's it? a real intrusion. Yeah. It is, and it's the kind of, okay, this is the moment where we face up to reality. And the whole of the stanza following that is implying that the answer to his question, you know, are your fingers long enough? Is the silence strong enough? The answer is kind of no. <laughs> um because then the final stanza, the counter-argument comes with, yet I would, I would like mm-hmm. to. And that's why ultimately in the penultimate line we have this conflict. And so I stumble because there's this doubt about the speaker's ability to, to kind of engage with this past and, and make something out of it. And then his determination to do so and to move forward. Mm. And the, these things can't be resolved. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting too, the double meaning of the yet at the start of the final stanza, so yet as in even so, or knowing all of this, but also yet as in still, a sort of temporal, Mm. a time uh, idea. Mm. That second sense, it's like he's persisting through time as Mm. he moves Mm. forward through time himself. Yeah, and that's what, I mean, the fourth and the fifth stanzas... I find really tricky to get my head around, you know, the sense is very vivid, the scene is very vivid and the sense is very clear in the first three stanzas, we know where we are, mm-hmm. and then as soon as he poses a question to himself, there's something quite obscure about the imagery and it's like the sentences are water and I'm kind of trying to grapple mm. with who's the, who's the subject and what is the music that's being carried back to its source and... What are the old keys that are themselves but echoes, you know? um, Because it's not quite about the idea of the speaker reliving Mm. an experience from the past. Mm. It's something more slippery. Yeah. Um, And I don't quite know what it is, and I don't quite know what the silence is as opposed to the music. Right, so this is all interesting, isn't it, in regard to Hart Crane's idea of what a poem should be doing and how he used metaphor. Yeah. I read a story about Harriet Monroe, the editor of Poetry Magazine in Chicago, rejecting one of his poems on the grounds that 
the metaphor was kind of jumping all over the place and she wasn't quite sure what was going on. And he wrote a rebuttal. And actually, to her credit, Harriet Monroe did print the poem in the end uh, with her objections and with his rebuttal and I think with her answer to those. But yes, he had an idea of what he called the logic of metaphor. Um, That it worked differently from scientific logic. Completely, yeah. 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 It's its own thing, it's doing its own thing. And that it was more akin, he thought, to the logic of dreaming, for instance. I feel that in this poem. I think um, I think Hart Crane's sense of metaphor is not to do with what words mean. It's mm. to do with the feeling that is triggered when you hear certain words, which of course might be slightly different for different people. But it's more about the emotional ballpark that you're in than about how you could precisely paraphrase or, or mm. translate the particular phrases that he's written. So... Are your fingers long enough to play old keys that are but echoes? Well, suddenly what's happening is we're being kind of swept into a room where someone is playing an old piano. And the atmosphere of that as a general association kind of gives us all we need. It's like there's a sense of something not quite belonging, that Mm -hmm. the person experiencing this is somehow slightly distanced from this music that's being generated. Mm. Um... I can imagine that being quite frustrating to lots of readers, actually, as it was, obviously, to Harriet Monroe. It's something you kind of have to buy into and go with, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's probably why I didn't... I mean, the response I had to this poem, which I read in The Selected, was really strong, and I keep coming back to it, and every time Mm. I read it, I just feel mesmerised, and I Mm. feel sad. Like, that beautiful sadness that is what surely motivates all poets. I feel it every single time, even though I know the poem off by heart. Yeah. And it just takes me to that place instantly. Yeah. And I think this one does it because the setup is concrete. So it's all clear. Whereas I find in some of his other poems where we're at this level of metaphor from the start, it's already run away without You're adrift. Me. Yeah. So exactly. he's take he's led you by the hand. Exactly. Uh, for the first three stanzas. Yeah. And he's taken me into this place of textures and sounds. I can almost smell the attic and the mouldering yeah. paper. You know, it, it's a familiar place. Yes. Even though in itself it, it's a metaphor in the world of the poem. Yeah. So by that stage, by the end of the poem, you're you're happy to be slightly cast adrift. Yeah, I feel mm. I can be held in that space. As soon as I get to the end of this poem, I just want to go back to the start and read it again. Yeah. And that's what you want. So it's interesting that you say that because it does end with the metaphor of rain as it started. And as we've hinted, the rain has taken on a different character by the end. Yeah. Do you um, want to say something more about that? Yeah, so we we start with yeah, how much room for memory there is in the loose girdle of soft rain. You know, the rain is providing an opening, a welcoming space mm. into which these possibly difficult or painful things can be brought and examined and accepted. Um, But at the end, we have the speaker, you know, setting up this conflict that they're possibly unable to resolve. And Mm. so I stumble. I stumble and the rain continues on the roof with such a sound of gently pitying laughter. Yeah. So, I mean, in those final two lines, rain is a repetition, roof is a repetition, such is a repetition. Gently is almost a repetition because we've had gentle in the middle of the poem. Steps must be gentle. Mm -hmm. But, you know... The rain now is not a comforting rain, but a kind of mocking rain. And the gentleness is not... um, A kind gentleness? Yeah, I mean, steps must be gentle is a very 
generous and empathic recognition, I suppose, whereas a sound of gently pitying laughter... Pitying it's sort is, of like patting someone on the head, isn't it? Yeah, it is, uh, and, and there's a lot held in that word which isn't nice. Um, yeah, but also is there a sense of that contrast with the eyes? So I stumble... Rain never stumbles, it's yeah. just regularly falling down um, yeah. and continuing on its way in, in a way that the speaker is unable to do. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's brought to an impasse by the end of the poem. Yeah. You know, there's the sense, not just I don't know what to do next, but I accept that this cannot be <laughs> resolved. So that's kind of the end of that. But yeah, the rain not only keeps going, but mocks and pities yes. him while it goes yeah and I just want to jump back quickly to line 14 to ask you what you make of that invisible white hair oh it's wonderful yeah um well for a start of course it's not invisible because we can see it as soon as he says white hair Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um I think of an old lady Mm. with white hair Mm -hmm. um I also think because it's hung and then in the next line we have the trembling and the word webbing so immediately I'm thinking of you know, spider, spider yeah, cobwebs, yeah. yeah, and it's creepy, yeah, and it's spidery. Um, oh, I love it, <laughs> and it's, it just sounds fantastic, doesn't yeah. it? It is all yeah. hung by an invisible white hair, it trembles as birch limbs webbing the air, yeah. And again, these little gestures that take us outside again the birch limbs webbing the air are on the other side of the roof, mm. and again, they bring us up skywards, mm. you know, into that kind of cosmic space outside, yeah. Um, in those lines, actually, I'm also interested in this repeated it that begins both of those lines. What is it? What does it refer to? Is it the past? You know, over the greatness of such space, steps must be gentle. It is all hung. It trembles. I mean, just a very literal reading. The first it you take, I think, as the space of the attic. Mm. And I suppose I read the attic itself as a sort of metaphor for memory, a space of mm. memory. Um but then the second it, that doesn't quite work for, does it? It trem- It's like it's the whole structure, the whole structure of everything that's brought the speaker yes. to this place yeah, in this, right, yeah, in this yeah, moment. Yeah. The family, everything that's in the past that's holding him up there. Yeah. Um, and that kind of links to, in this tricksy bit towards the end of the poem, where we've gone off and with the silence and the music and... Um, you know, is the silence strong enough to carry back the music to its source and back to you again as though to her? Mm. Now, the, I, I'm always interested, I mean, I'm quite literal-minded, in the geometry of a poem, like, who or what is here and where are they in relation to mm. other things? So I'm kind of, again, this repetition of the word back, it means something different each time. So to carry back the music to its source, we're going back in time but, mm-hmm. and back to you again. Mm-hmm. Back is taking us forward, right? Mm-hmm. It's returning to him in the present. But then to you again as though to her. Yeah, the syntax is really uh, tricky there, it's, isn't it? It is. And there's also, I suppose, the question of, of who her is. You know, the grandmother isn't called the grandmother first time round, but is not only my mother's mother, but then even more specifically Elizabeth, so she's named... But the mother gets a mention because... Two mentions. My mother's mother. So could the her be referring to the mother? Um, I mean, I read it as the grandmother, but... Yeah, I think... I don't know what I get from that line, really. I suppose I was generally thinking of the grandmother, but really, whoever she is, it's her as residing in him. 
almost it's like he is now both, yeah. he is now the kind of the culmination of this this maternal lineage you know mm, there's mm. the grandmother and then the mother and now there's him and he's the one standing here with these letters in his hand so it's the as though of that line that actually I'm trying to get my head around is and back to you again as though to her like which might as well be to her yeah. so it's you know it's just tricky and it's all of these things and probably not quite any of them <laughs> so that's so interesting because you said that you are generally quite literal minded and that you weren't particularly as I wasn't I'm not particularly drawn to Hart Crane from what I've read of his other mm. poems but I really like this poem too um and it's so interesting that you're saying, oh, it could be this. And, you know, he jumps about in his, in a dreamlike way uh, when it comes to metaphor and so on. That someone who's a self-confessed, <laughs> little-minded person would be drawn to this poem is interesting to me. Yeah, I think it's because I can never drop that desire to make sense of everything. And what's beautiful about this poem is that it won't let me, because ultimately, you know, guess what? Not everything does make sense. And not everything does add up neatly. And I think that is the very dilemma that the speaker here is grappling with. They're trying to go, oh, a chance to put the past to rest before it disappears to nothing, before it melts like snow. Let's handle these things. And actually, it's like opening Pandora's box. You know, you touch these things and... In a way, you might resist it, but perhaps are flooded with feelings that you hadn't anticipated and suddenly you're implicated Mm. in situations from the past that belong to people that aren't you and yet here you are connected to them by invisible threads (laughs) that you can never quite sever. And there's something to do with all that that this poem is doing and it's through its acoustic patterning and its beautiful imagery that I can't quite paraphrase is holding me in that space. Mm. And I just think that's an amazing thing that the poem can do because it's made its own little world then and we're in it as long as we want to be. It's forcing us as readers to surrender, which, as you say, is quite a a good thing to be forced to do now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's a really good place uh, to end. Thank you so much for talking to us about one of your favourite poems, My Grandmother's Love Letters by Hart Crane. Thank you for your wit and insight and for being just a fantastic guest today. Thank you very much for having me. Rebecca Watts and Rebecca's latest poetry collection is Red Gloves, published by Carcanet. That was the latest in the Poetry Break series for Writers Aloud and featured Rebecca Watts in conversation with Julia Copus. You can find out more about Rebecca on her website, rebeccawatts.weebly.com. And that concludes episode 425 of Writers Aloud, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copus. Coming up in episode 426, Sarah Wheeler speaks with Caroline Sanderson about the sources of her inspirations as a travel writer and biographer, and why the writer's job is to find hope and celebrate the individual human spirit's survival. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.